so tonight we're going to be in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 9. Uh, if you have your Bibles, or of course, um, you can have your notes, or they're on the screen. We're reminded once again that as we go through each of these miracles, that these miracles are not just about the miracle. The miracle is amazing. The momentary um, experience of the miracle is not to be shied away from, but it's not all that there is. What we find is that these miracles are merely just a launching pad into greater depths of what Jesus was trying to communicate through all these miracles. And so as we pick up in John chapter 9, um, Jesus is back in Jerusalem. And we kind of skip chapter 8 because there's a miracle that's performed in chapter 8. But in chapter 8, just on the heels of what's going on tonight, is Jesus is again in Jerusalem and he intersects a situation where religious leaders are prepared to stone to death a woman that was caught in the act of adultery. Jesus interferes, he protects the woman, he doesn't protect her sin but he protects her and he kind of talks down the religious leaders, they end up walking away. What that means is that coming off of that, the religious leaders are growing more and more furious with Jesus. Not only years beforehand did he heal people on the Sabbath and they were not able to contend with Jesus' teaching, but now he has just humiliated them because they literally caught a woman in the act of adultery and he was able to convince them not to stone her to death. And so their fury is rising. And then here just shortly after we find Jesus on a Sabbath day and he's doing the work of healing once again. And so if you got your Bible in John chapter nine, uh, scripture picks up here. The Bible says, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told the man, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed, and he came home again seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him beggingly asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, it just looks like him. But he himself insisted, no, I'm the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked him. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. That's a story you want to tell your grandbabies, am I right? The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and to wash. And so I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. And he said, I don't know. And then all of a sudden at this point, the religious leaders, Pharisees, they begin to catch wind of what's happening. So they go and they begin to question the man. And the questioning becomes more of an interrogation. And they end up bringing the man's mom and dad into the situation. And they begin to interrogate them. And they're asking all these different kind of questions. And at a certain point, they get so frustrated with the guy because he is not answering them the way that they want to be answered. The Bible says they start hurling insults at the man. They just start just tearing him down. 
And so he replied, look, they're asking him all these questions. He says, look, I don't, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. The guy's saying, listen, you ask all these, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Let me tell you what I know. I couldn't see yesterday. Today I can see. He kind of dumbed it down for him in an easy way to understand. So this, to this, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out of their presence. Jesus shows up and Jesus says to the man, for judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and they asked, what are we blind to? And Jesus replied, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Lord, such potent words coming from the Son of God tonight. My prayer, Lord, is that you'll enable me to capture the moment, the essence of what you want to communicate to your people. Mature us, grow us, develop us, increase our capacity for faith, help us to understand not just what the Lord does, but why he does and your heart behind all these things. So I pray for your help. I pray for your strength and your blessing over your word tonight in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. Tonight we're going to go ahead and jump in, and what we have been doing every week is we break down, we, um, we break down the text and we just talk about the miracle and what it reveals to us about the Lord, how that we can understand the message behind the miracle. And so tonight we're going to go ahead and jump in. If you have your notes, um, bullet number one is simply this. The miracle reveals that Jesus understands our innate brokenness. You have this situation where the disciples are walking along. Jesus is walking along. And all of a sudden, the disciples see a blind beggar. They ask Jesus, they say, Jesus, you see this guy? Okay, let's, let's start a conversation, right? They're not interested in healing the guy or anything like that. They say, Jesus, let's, let's talk about this dude. You see he's a blind beggar. So the question is, Lord, who sinned, right? Who was it? Was it, was it him? Did he sin to cause himself to fall in this condition? Or was it his mom or his dad who sinned to get him to fall into this condition? Okay? Now, 2,000 years ago in this culture, there was a lot of teaching that was somewhat biblical but not completely biblical. Okay, it was almost like a syncretism of culture, especially the Jewish people who had been influenced by the Greeks. Um, there was a lot of mythology that was kind of tied to scripture, and sometimes those two worlds came together, and there was a lot of confusion. I'll tell you, there's a, there's a lot of confusion today in many churches in the West. There's a great deal of syncretism going on in pulpits that are confusing what it means to teach the Bible and what it means to teach politics or what it means to teach the Bible and what it means to teach certain cultural issues. And we have to be careful to make sure that, uh, like, like for instance, these people, these Jewish people, um, they were not necessarily teaching things that were wrong, but they weren't necessarily right either. And so as we go into future days in a, in a culture that is just off the rails. I've never, I'm only 40, but I've never seen anything like what we're living in in our lifetime, in my lifetime. 
But I'll say this, even in the church world, like, like church in general in the West, um, I'm, I, I know it sounds like I'm, I'm critical of the church. I'm not critical of the church. God is doing so much in the world through his bride. Um, but as it has always been, um, there, is some, there is some very poor teaching out there. there is some very, there's a lot of poor theological stances that people are taking. And I just want to encourage us. This is so heavy in my soul. I'm getting off topic here for a minute. But it has been weighing on me for months and months. I feel such a burden. Um, I think that we have to be a people that, that you remember in Scripture in the book of Acts when Paul goes and he's teaching and he goes to this place called Berea right? And he goes, and the Bible says that the Bereans, when they heard his message, they took his message and they measured it against the Bible that they had the Old Testament scriptures. And when they realized that what he was saying measured rightly against the scriptures, they received the gospel. And the Bible says they were more noble than the other Gentiles, not, not for any innate reason. They were more noble because they didn't just take stuff that was spoken to them and receive it as truth. They took it and they measured it against Scripture. And I just want to encourage us in a, in, a, in a culture that we live in where sound bites are everything and social media, every, you know, person who has more than a thousand followers somehow is a theologian now and should be respected and just just the craziest things we need to be a people of the word and I know I'm talking to the church I know who I'm talking to tonight I'm just this is more like me getting this off my chest so thank you for being my therapist tonight um but let me just let me just say I, I'm deeply I'm deeply concerned I'm, I'm so deeply troubled for next generations and where they are going to get sound theological truth if oftentimes when they watch church online or go to uh, churches that do not have a foundation of, of theology, like proper theology, that they are just going to drink in anything that comes their way. We have never had more access to information ever. The human race has never had access to more information than we do today. And as good as that is on so many levels, it can be a pitfall for an entire generation if we're not, if we're not careful. And so um, I say that as if I have, you know, all theology right. I'm sure when I get to heaven, the Lord will point out many things that I don't have right theologically. But, but let me just say this. I know the main things I do have right theologically. And unfortunately, it's vacant in many pulpits across this nation in this era. And so anyway, thank you. But it's always been like this. There's always been a syncretism within, uh, throughout church history. There's always been this, um, you know, things that were taught that were kind, you know, they're not really wrong, but they're not exactly right. And kind of mixing the culture in with theology. And that's exactly what's happening in this moment. The disciples say, look, who, uh, who sinned that the man's blind? Was it what his mom and his dad? Was it him? What's going on? And the reason they're asking these questions is because in that culture, uh, there was a strong Hellenistic Jewish influence. There's a strong Greek influence with a lot of mytholo uh, 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 mythology and different things like that. And so there were some beliefs that were not completely unbiblical, but they're definitely not biblical. Like, like there were some beliefs that the Jews believed where they could point to a scripture, but you really had to work that scripture to make it say what they wanted it to say. 
right? And we're experiencing a lot of that in, in our current culture. And so there were some beliefs that were kind of bizarre. Like, for instance, there were some that believed that um, a, a human before conception, they believed that the soul of that person or the spirit of that person had almost like a pre-life somewhere in eternity past, a pre-life that they lived. And when that child or that spirit um, based on how they lived in that pre-life era, when they entered the womb in conception, they were given a body health-wise based off a reward-punishment system. So if they did really well in this pre-life, then they would be born into a healthy body. But if they did some wrong things or if they had sinned in this pre-life, then they were given a body with some type of defect, right? And so the, this is what the disciples are alluding to. Other people would, would believe that uh, children could sin within the womb. And even in Jewish culture, people would point to um, Jacob and Esau when they were in the womb. The Bible says that they wrestled with one another. And some Jewish commentators would, would take liberty with that. And they would say, no, no, the, the, what they're really saying, they weren't saying they were wrestling. They were really trying to kill each other in the womb. They hated each other so much in the womb that they were literally trying to kill each other even though that's not what scripture says, it's, it's this idea of prenatal sin, that when a child is even in the womb, that the child can sin. Now, what we find from the scripture is that the kid was, the man was from birth, he was blind is what the text says. So from birth, so the disciples are trying to figure out, did he sin in a former, like in his pre-life? Or did he sin while he was in the womb? Or did his parents sin and that sin is why he is blind, right? And so when the disciples asked about his parents, um, the disciples could have been asking one of two questions. They, A, were either asking, was this a type of generational curse that is on this, this child? So for instance, did, while mom was pregnant, did, you know, she have an affair and all of a sudden uh, that, because of that affair, um, the son is now cursed with, with something like that? Or they were asking if, you know, while the child was in the womb, did maybe mom and dad get into an argument and dad hit mom and because he sinned against mom, the physical effect of the child when he hit the baby Maybe the baby was born blind because of the sin, or you know, maybe did mom use drugs and the sin of using drugs called the birth defect. So the disciples are asking one of two questions, okay? Now, here's the kicker. Jesus steps in and he says, it doesn't matter because none of those scenarios are true. He says, it wasn't him, it wasn't his mama, and it wasn't his daddy. Now, Jesus doesn't give us a cause. He doesn't tell us why. He doesn't say, well, it wasn't them, but let me tell you what it was. He doesn't, he just totally jumps over that and he starts talking to them about not just, not just how he became blind, but Jesus transitions and talks about why he is blind. And Jesus' why behind it is so that the works of God can be exalted through this man's life. And so though we don't understand the actual specific cause of why the man's blind, if someone individually sinned, this is what we do realize. You see, we, we today, we have the advantage of New and Old Testament text. 
right? The, the Christians of this day, everybody didn't have access. We have access so that we can understand the ways of God, that we can measure scripture against scripture, that we can measure life against scripture, and we have a far more thorough understanding than people did 2,000 years ago. Because we have that advantage, this is what we know. It may not have been a sin that caused his blindness. In other words, like a little s sin. It may not have been his sin or something his mom did. But what we do realize is that sin caused his blindness. Like the concept of sin. Um, we, we read in scripture uh, in Romans 5 where Paul discusses the fall of humankind. And he said, through Adam's sin... Everything was corrupted. And because Adam sinned, now sin corrupts us all. And so therefore, this is why um, we are all broken to some degree. Now, some of you may look and may say, I'm not very broken. You are. And if you think that way, you're probably more broken than you think. Okay, but here's this, the thing. As a people, every person who is ever born is broken physically. We're broken physically. But far more than being broken physically, we are broken spiritually. We are, there is an instant disconnect from the Father. Jesus was the mediator that came to, to bridge that connection. So we know that we are spiritually broken, but what we also understand is that we're physically broken because of sin, because of Adam's sin. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul writes in Romans, he says, look, it's not just humanity that's broken. The entire universe is broken. This is why we have decay. This is why you get mold on bread. This is why when you cut your grass in South Carolina, you got to cut it again in like, you know, four hours. It's because things are going out of control because sin has invaded the planet. And so we understand that there is a spiritual side of sin, but even on, on a physical level, and, and for some people, this is, this is very, very troubling, but, but stay with me when I say this. It's important for us to understand that when, when people are born, we're born broken. And what I mean by that, we're born broken spiritually, but we're also broken like physically. So this is why, because of sin, some people, when they are born, they have health defects like blindness, or maybe their body, their genetic makeup, they are more prone to a disease like leukemia. It's not that they did anything or their parents did anything wrong. It's the brokenness of the world that sometimes things just happen because of the overarching sin, right? And so we understand that in a, in a way that we are physically broken, but we also understand the spiritual disconnectedness from the Lord. And let me take it a step further and just say this that even though there is an ultimate disconnect from the Lord, spiritually speaking, we also come out of the womb broken in the sense that we are bent towards certain types of sin. Every person in this room, every person watching online, there are certain things that gain your attention regarding sin more than other things. And it's not because you've necessarily done anything wrong, and it's not necessarily because your mom or dad or anybody else have done anything wrong, but it's because you were born into sin. This is why you know people or you've known people in life, and for whatever reason, you're just like, this person is a pathological liar. They just lie all the time. Like, they're really good at lying, you know, or somebody who is 
prone or bent towards gambling addictions or whatever the case may be, we are all born to one degree or another bent towards sin. And this is the purpose, the reason uh, that Jesus comes. And so Jesus does this miracle with this brokenness. He's trying to help us understand something a little bit deeper, is that he understands our brokenness, not just on a spiritual level, but also on a physical level. And this is the thing that should blow our minds as much as anything that I say tonight. We're going to talk some theology and different things like that, but, but all that stuff aside, what should really stand out to us is simply this that this is a blind beggar. He has no worth in the eyes of the world. The son of God empties himself of all rights. He empties himself of everything that he could possess. And he comes down, he doesn't just converse with broken people, spiritually broken people. He goes to the lowest of the lowest of the lows. And he doesn't just conversate with a blind beggar. He gets in the dirt with him. It's a personal thing that Jesus is after. Jesus could have healed the man. He could, look, you remember we talked about the, the man who was born crippled for 38 years and Jesus healed him at, at the pool of Bethesda. You remember there were maybe thousands of people. Jesus could have just done like bending. You know, and everybody could have been healed. He didn't do it. That perplexes, that frustrates. Why would Jesus have the ability but not do it? He's sending a message that he wants personal connectivity, that he cares for me as an individual and understands not just my spiritual disconnect from the Lord, but he understands even the physical things that trouble me. And he wants in. He, he, wants, he wants to be involved in that moment. And so Jesus does this with the blind beggar to reveal that he understands our innate brokenness. Number two is this. Jesus, through the miracle, reveals that he is constantly operating in two different realms. Jesus is constantly toggling. When you read this text, read it with fresh eyes later this week. But when you read the text, Sometimes it's difficult to know, is Jesus talking about the spiritual or is Jesus talking about the physical? Because he's constantly toggling between the two. The reason is because he's operating on both levels at the same time, and it's hard for our minds to kind of stay on track with him. And so Jesus, as he's operating at the same time, there's even some symbolism that he throws into the mix. Think about this. Jesus goes and he mixes saliva with dirt. He makes this mud patty. He puts it on the man's eyes. I don't know if you've ever had dirt in your eyes, okay? It doesn't feel very healing, okay? It feels very painful. But more, probably more than painful, it's irritating. It's irritating. You're constantly, especially if you can't get that little grain of sand out of your eye, you're constantly, now you, people are afraid you got pink eye and they don't want to get near you because you're constantly, no, I'm good, it's not pink eye, it's, you know, it's sand in my eye. It's super irritating. And so we see a man who has mud in his eyes that are irritating his eyes in the physical realm. But in the spiritual realm, 
we see Jesus teaching a message on a spiritual level that is irritating the spiritual eyes of the religious leaders. It's rubbing them raw. They can't understand. They're trying to dissect. They're trying to eliminate all kind of evidence. They're questioning this guy. They're challenging everything that he says. And it's because in a spiritual sense, they cannot see what's really going on. They got eyes to see in the, in, the, in the physical. They can see everything that's transpiring in the physical, but they cannot perceive what is happening in the spiritual realm. It reminds me of the woman that is, has the issue with blood for, for 12 years, and, and she's going, the Bible says that as Jesus is walking along, that the crowd is throwing against Jesus, and there are dozens of people. He's being bumped along as he walks. People are touching Jesus. And then all of a sudden, this woman, as, as, as tight as she can, she reaches out her hand and just swipes to grab the hem of his garment. And all of a sudden, with the people pushing all over Jesus, he said, wait, somebody just touched me. What Jesus was helping us understand in that moment is that there's a difference between touching Jesus and touching Jesus. There's a difference between seeing what Jesus is doing in the physical and seeing what Jesus is trying to accomplish in the, in the spiritual realm. And so here in this moment, we see Jesus just kind of going back and forth between these two realms. And it's one of the most relieving moments that we see in all of scripture as this man is just being berated with questions. I mean, they're asking him, who was Jesus? Where is he? Why did you let him touch you? Why did it happen on the Sabbath? Was the man a sinner? And the guy is just like, no, no, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. I can't remember. And he keeps doing these things. And it's one of the most freeing moments in all of scripture. You can tell just that the emotion of the moment overwhelms the man. So much so that the, uh, the Pharisees look at him and they say, don't lecture us. Because he had gotten so emotionally riled up. And he said, look, I don't know. I don't know who he is. I heard his name's Jesus. I don't even know what that means. I don't know if he's a sinner. I don't know why he did it on a Sabbath. I'm not mad about it. I don't know. All I know, I was blind. But now I see. And this is the essence of the entire story. Is that these men with their physical eyes have seen what Jesus can do. But they can't perceive it with their spiritual eyes. And it's a lesson for all of us. It's a lesson for all of us to not just merely see this realm that we see in the natural, but to understand that behind every natural moment, there is something supernatural that's transpiring. And we need to ask the Lord to give us eyes to see those things as they transpire. So number three is simply this. The miracle reveals that Jesus can transform bad situations into good for us, good for others, and glory for himself. Joseph's brothers, the book of Genesis, you remember? His brothers want to kill him. One noble brother says, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery and take the money. We can't have his blood on our hands. So they end up selling this man into slavery. Decades go by, the hardship of Joseph's life, just the utter betrayal again and again and again, lied upon in prison just over and over again. At the end of his, near, nearing the end of his life, his brothers 
have a moment and they come back and he revisits them and he confronts them. He's conflicted inside, but ultimately he chooses forgiveness. And this is what he says to his brothers. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. When we see this moment happen, one of the most frustrating questions that we can ask is, why would God allow this man to experience blindness? It, the Bible says that he was a man and he was born blind. Now, in today's culture, we identify a man as someone who's 18 years old, which is, should not be the qualifications of manhood, okay? That's another story. But in Jewish culture, oftentimes people were considered a man if they were married or when they reached about the age of 30, so we don't really know this man's ultimate context, really what's going on, but this is what we do know. For at least 18, 20 years, this man has been blind. It, he could be 47 years old, we just don't know, but since birth, he has been blind. And the question is, why would God allow this man to experience this type of suffering? And it is revealed here, it's not just so that the man could receive physical sight, but it's so that the man could receive spiritual sight so that he could see who the Messiah is. And it wasn't just that he experienced suffering just for himself and the betterment of his self, but others that witnessed this miraculous encounter, they would now come to trust the Messiah. And it would be for the salvation of their souls, but it wouldn't just be for the people that witnessed it, it would be for people 2,000 years later who were still encouraged by such a story. See, and in most of our situations, I'm speaking for myself here, when I go through suffering, I have a tendency to be very nearsighted about my suffering. Why this? Why now? Why God? You can prevent this. Why are you letting this happen to me? Oftentimes it's, why are you doing this to me? Okay, even when he's not. But as Father, why are you allowing this? Like, why are you allowing this? And I'm so nearsighted in the moment but beyond the suffering, when I take a step back, I am so far-sighted, and I can say, oh, wow, that's, that's why. Because it's not just for my betterment. I went through the suffering, and I can see my betterment, but it was definitely for the betterment of others. But it's not just for my betterment and the betterment of others. Ultimately, when we do it right, it ultimately is for the glory of God. Jesus said, look, he said, look, why was this man born blind? He doesn't go into the cause or anything. He says, Why? Why? So the works of God can be seen in his life. But man, how many times do we just get so just compartmentalized and we see it for what's happening right now in the moment instead of taking a step back and saying, no, I need to see this with an eternal perspective. Joni Erickson uh, Tata, you may have you may be familiar with her. She has an international ministry. She's an incredible woman of God. She's been paralyzed for over 50 years, a quadriplegic for over 50 years. And she made a profound, profound statement one time. She said this, sometimes God allows what he hates in order to accomplish that which he loves. Did you catch that? I'm gonna camp out there just for one second. Sometimes God allows what he hates in order to accomplish that which he loves loves. Does God love a blind man? Well, he loves the blind man. Does he love the blindness of the man? No. 
It's, it's a result of sin. God hates the fact that this man is blind. But God has allowed that which he hates because God has eternal vision. And God understands that even though this is a moment, and I hate to see this guy going through this, I know ultimately it's going to be for his good, for the good of others, and for the glory of the Father. I know that's true. And so I'm willing to let this happen in his life so that these things can transpire and these things um, can unfold. And so it's incredibly important that we keep in mind, and I'll further say this, even when people sin against us, not even in moments where just things happen, we get a bad doctor report or we get in a car accident, not just bad things that happen, but when someone intentionally sins against us, it's so important that we not be so short-sighted that we really take a step back and we see what God may want to do through this. And so when we go through suffering, it's important to keep in mind, ultimately God is gonna work this out for my good. Whether it looks like it now or not, he is going to work this out for my good because I am called and uh, I'm, according to his purposes, I am beloved of God. He is going to work this out for me. But if I walk this out well, he's also gonna help other people and he is gonna bring glory unto his own name. And I'm gonna be a vessel as a part of that. So. Number four, this miracle. You guys, I don't know what it is, but I just feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I'm so sorry. Number four, simply this. I never have enough time. If I prepare a half a page of notes, I'm never gonna have enough time. So number four is this. The miracle reveals that Jesus' graces cannot be earned. L let me clarify. Jesus' grace for salvation cannot be earned. And Jesus' graces of healing, of love, of favor, of blessing, those cannot be earned either. I remember hearing a story one time of a little beggar girl who was outside of the gates of an enormous palace. And she was doing everything she could to find morsels of food just to fill her belly for the day so that she could wake up and get back to it the next day. And the little girl, as she peered into the gates of the palace, she saw a pear that was sitting just on the other side. The pear hadn't been bitten. It had just fallen off of a pear tree, and it was within reach. And she goes, and on her knees, she goes, and she grabs the pear. And just before she does, another hand swoops in, and it grabs the pear. The little girl looks up, and there's a man standing there. And it's the prince. It's the son of the king. The son of the king says, is this the pair that you're looking for? She starts to scramble. She's trying to find coins. She finds a coin that's worth nothing really and she pulls it out and she says, oh, sir, I'm so sorry. I'm willing, here, you know, please take this. And the man looks at her and he says this. He says, do you see this kingdom? Do you see the vastness and the beauty and the wealth of this kingdom? He said, my father is the king of this kingdom. Everything of this my father owns. Furthermore, my father is far too wealthy to sell anything he owns. You can have this pair for free or you can't have this pair at all. And in that moment, what she began to realize is that a king that has surpassing abundance 
surpassing kindness and generosity, who has no lack and no need from anyone or anything, does not need to have something purchased from him. And let me just encourage us. I know some of us, like myself, for example, I know that if I'm not careful, I can develop very much a works mentality in my relationship with the Lord. Did I pray enough? Did I fast enough? Did I read enough? Did I, was I kind enough? Was I this enough? And, and all these things revolve and it distorts my relationship with the Father. And the Father's looking down and he's saying, Corey, Corey, listen to me. You can't earn the depth of this love that I have. I'm far too abundant in love to have somebody try to earn love from me. I'm far too wealthy in healing to have somebody think that they can pray enough for me to heal them. If I want to heal them, they can have it, but they can't buy it. It's going to be something that I give to them for free. Now, I'm not saying we don't have a responsibility to to pray or to have faith or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. We, we have a responsibility to do those things. But the weight of the miraculous, the weight of healing, the weight of our salvation, the weight of us feeling the favor and the love of God, that weight is not our weight to carry. That's the weight of the Father. And he's the king of the kingdom. There's no lack within him. He has an abundance for it all. And in this moment, we see Jesus ministering to this beggar. Like, if you were blind, that's all you could do. You can't work. Are you, you going to be like a blacksmith and cut your fingers off one at a time? That's what a blind blacksmith is going to do, right? No, you have to beg because you can't do anything else. And Jesus gets in the dirt and grovels with this man and brings healing to him. The man can offer him nothing. The man can offer him nothing. And Jesus says, it's good because I don't need you to offer me anything. You can have it for free, or you can't have it at all. And the man says, pour it on. Pour it on, I'll take it. Amen? So it's important for us to understand that Jesus' graces can't be earned. Amen? All right, just make sure you're still live out there. All right, number five, the miracle reveals that Jesus' timing is perfect. Um, let me just say this. I've been married to my wife for 21 years. And for a long first part of our marriage, my wife was perpetually late to almost everything that we attended. And it drives me nuts being late anywhere, okay? It drives me nuts. And the reason is because I feel like, like if Pastor Justin invites me over for dinner and I show up 10 minutes late, I feel like the signal that I'm sending Pastor Justin is, well, your time's not that important to me, so I'll, just, I'll show up when the heck I wanna show up, right? That's, what I, like, that's in my heart, I wanna honor him, so I wanna be on time. What I've come to realize, everybody doesn't think like that. There's like not ill, and, and some people are just like, oh, I had no intention of offending you. I just, I didn't, I lost track of time or whatever. And that's exactly the way that one, you know what's funny about that? My wife has five children now. She is more on time now than she's ever been in our marriage. It's the, it's the craziest thing. But anyway, my point is this. My point is simply this. We're all different, okay? We're all different. And so we all see things differently. Sometimes when we look at the timing of God, it can be utterly frustrating. To a person like me, when I look at a man who was crippled for 38 years, I'm like, Lord, why did you wait 38 years? This man has suffered for 38 years. Why would you do that? I look at Lazarus in the tomb for four days, his sisters weeping over his death for four days. I'm like, Lord, you were 20 miles away. Why? Like, it, it's so frustrating to me, Lord. Why would you show up? just kind of late. And what I have learned, not only with the Lord, but with my wife, that even when he's late, 
he's on time. Even when joy is late, she's on time. I've learned that the hard way, okay? The point is simply this, is that when we get into moments where we begin to experience suffering, we have to understand that even though we don't understand the timing of God or we get frustrated or we're confused with the timing of God, God is never thrown off. He has a heavenly timetable that is not of this planet. It's not of this world. And the, the frustrating thing is, is that it doesn't match my timetable. Sometimes my time, I'm like, man, you're late. And the Lord's like, oh no, I'm on time. I'm, I'm right on time. I'm like, no, Lord, you're, you're, he's like, what? You know, and then he gives me the Job speech where he was like, where were you when I created the foundations of the planet? And then I shut up and move on. So we understand that God's timing is perfect. Number six and finally is this, we're wrapping up. This miracle reveals that Jesus's ways are truly mysterious. Throughout the gospels, Jesus heals a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. Some people he speaks a word, like from a distance, he just speaks a word healed and they're healed at his word. Other people he goes and touches, other people touch him without him even knowing. In this particular instance, Jesus uses spittle to heal a blind man's sight. Four different times in scripture, we see Jesus heal blind people. Two times, Jesus simply goes and he touches their eyes. One time, Jesus uses just his spit and slaps it on the guy's eyes. And the third time, Jesus takes dirt, spittle, mixes them together for a consistency and puts it on the man's eyes. And what there seems to be is there seems to be this consistent inconsistency of how Jesus does things. And I almost wonder if the Lord was doing things like super sporadically just to kind of get us like, wait, hold on, how did you do it that time? What? No, last time you did it, why are you doing it like this? And I think what the Lord may have been trying to do, knowing that for thousands of years, people would be obsessed with the methodology of how Jesus did certain things, that Jesus was just trying to throw them off and say, you guys will never understand. It's not about methodology. It's not about methodology. You gotta lean into that. It's not about methodology. And so I think what he was trying to do is he was trying to throw things off a little bit and help us to understand that we cannot obsess over methodologies. And instead of trying to figure God out, that there are moments that we just need to sit and surrender and in awe of the mysterious nature of the creator God. We live in a culture that is obsessed with pragmatism. Does it work? If it doesn't work, if I don't understand it, I'm not gonna do it. If I don't understand it, I'm not gonna believe it. If I don't understand it, if I don't understand it, if I can't put it together, and God takes a step back through the prophet Isaiah and he says, listen, listen, please understand my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are so far above your ways. This is an arrogance coming from the throne. This is just like a reality check. He's like, let me do you a favor and help you understand. You're never going to understand certain things. Sit in the mystery. Understand that our God is too magnificent to truly comprehend. And let that, let that sink into your soul. When I finally, finally, it took me years, but when I finally came to a point where I began to just embrace the mystery of God, can I tell you, I became marveled with God. 
I became such an awe at something. What do you mean I can't figure it out? What do you mean science can't give me a definition? What do you mean theologians can't tell me what this means? And I'll tell you the moment it happened for me. I was reading a book, and I'm closing. I was reading a book, and it was talking about the, the triune God, the three-in-one Father, Son, Spirit. And Martin Luther made a statement. He said, although we can't figure it out, although it violates our intellect, although that it becomes a mystery to us, we must come to a place where we see it in Scripture and we just choose to believe. We see the mystery and we just choose to believe. And I thought, I let a Reformed guy teach me something today. And it was truly a miraculous moment. And so I just want to encourage you. Embrace the mystery of God. The things you don't even, even the things that somebody probably could explain to you that you don't understand, for the time that you don't understand, just embrace the moment. And just marvel in the goodness of God. And like, Lord, I love the fact that I'm kind of dumb. I love the fact that I don't get it. I love the fact that you're so far, like, just embrace the moment. And it's all Timus Christ. It'll be incredible. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your precious people, the saints. And I pray the blessing of the Lord over them as we go this week. Help us, Lord, to learn to suffer well. Help us to embrace your mystery. Help us to choose rightly. Help us to understand that struggles in this life are ultimately you are going to work them out for our good and for your glory. Help us to believe it. Help us to live it. Bless your people as they go tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. 